Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, Spooksters, and welcome back to another Stabby Snippet here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, Jessica, one of your co-hosts, and I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend and better podcast half, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. And before I get started, normally we just jump right in. But before we get started, since it is officially Spooktober. Yay! Woo! Woot woot. So excited about it. All the spooky stuff that's happening. We just wanted to make an announcement on today's show that any new joining $5 and up patrons will receive, while supplies last, a very cute little spooky enamel pin with your otherwise swag stuff. Yes, yes. So if you were thinking about pulling the trigger on being a patron, it is the time. Tara and I just spent like a long time of her just opening and showing them to me. So. <laughs> yes, I'll probably have a picture up on social sometime today, too, for you guys. Um, And I also we have not mentioned this on the show. We've mentioned this on socials and in the group. We also have an annual option now. And if you do that, you actually get a discount. So you get a month for free. So there is that as well. That's pretty great. Forgive my voice, guys. For some reason, my allergies are attacking me, but the show must go on, and I love you, and hopefully, hopefully it's adding to the spookiness. Yes. I think you sound fine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I think I sound like uh, my allergies are sitting in my sinuses. It's okay. Okay. The case I'm going to be covering today is a recently solved cold case that took 46 years, seven months, and five days, to be exact, for an arrest. And it is the case of Carla Jan Walker, who was born on January 25th, 1957, in Texas, right outside Fort Worth, to her parents of Laurent and Doris Walker. And our story takes place in 1974, when she was 17 years old. She was attending the Western Hills High School in Benbrook, Texas, which is a subdivision or like a suburb of Fort Worth. She was described as a spitfire. Her sister, Cindy, says that's like the number one way to describe her is that she was a spitfire. She was a varsity cheerleader and very popular. She was well-liked and got along with everyone. She was like the quintessential high school blonde hair, blue-eyed girl of that time. She was outgoing, well-behaved, and a good student. And she had her first longtime boyfriend, a boy by the name of Rodney McCoy. And he was a senior and they had been dating about a year, which in high school time is a long flipping time. 
Right? I mean, even for some adults, that's a long time, too. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> right. We all know those people who were like, mm, we're, we worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a senior and went to the same high school. And he was the star quarterback. He also played baseball. So I'm getting this feeling like this is really like that like close-knit community, Texas big on sports, like she's the cheerleader, he's the football player kind of thing. And they were high school sweethearts and the quintessential high school couple. They were well-behaved kids. Nobody ever was like, Carla and Rodney are out doing bad things. They were always home on time. It was said that they never fought, that they were like in puppy love and whatnot. The only difference for, with, about Rodney is that most kids in this community had grown up like K through 12. So kind of like how Tara and I grew up, you started grammar or like elementary school with kids and you grew up with them throughout high school. But Rodney's family had moved to the area when he was in high school. So he was the new kid and Carla took notice and just basically gravitated to the new kid. I don't know. There was something special about him. I saw a picture of the two of them. They were super adorable together. He had that like shag haircut. It wasn't like the full shaggy hippie hair, but it was longer than a bowl cut. And it was said that Carla's parents loved him, that when Carla introduced him to her parents, they accepted him and they loved him and they thought of him like another son. So they were very positive about their relationship together. And all of her friends the same way and like vice versa for his family. And everyone said they were just so well matched. So Rodney was going to graduate from high school, and when he was to graduate from high school, he planned on attending Texas Tech, which was a little ways away. But Carla was going; was only a junior, and she's going to be a senior. And they were young, but they were planning their life out together because they became very serious about one another. The plan was that she would finish high school in Benbrook, which I'm like, how is that an option? If I had gone to my parents and been like, hi, this is the boy I'm dating, and he's graduating, so I'm going to go finish high school where he's going. My parents would have been like, you funny. (laughs) So then she planned to graduate and then either attend Texas Tech or another school close to that area so that they could still be together. On Friday, February 15th, the two went out. So it's February 15th, 1974. They went out to what was called a local beer bust, which was kind of like, I assume, as a tailgating party. And there was a bunch of high school students and like teens, so like a little bit older than high school, and then some people in their early 20s and possibly even older than that, which is an important detail. So while they were there, there were some like older guys and one of the older guys took notice of Carla and really was paying her attention, was like over the top flirting and hitting on her. And really it was bugging Rodney and like Rodney let it be known he was annoyed by it. But nothing happened that night. I'm like, I'm thinking of like Vampire Diaries early season where Matt is just like really grumpy that this new guy is talking to Elena. Um, (laughs) Tonight, like, because Tara and I record two episodes, we're talking, I'll be talking about Vampire Diaries again, so it's, like, very much on my brain. But that's kind of the feel I got. So, they went home, he dropped her off, everything was fine. Well, the next day, February 16th, was the official Valentine's Day dance, because obviously it's just a couple days after. She borrowed a light blue dress from her sister, Cindy, and everyone said she looked beautiful and everyone was like really excited. Rodney picked her up for the dance. He borrowed his mother's car. Typically, they would go out in Carla's car, but I think it was a little bigger and like with her dress, he wanted to drive. So he borrowed his mother's car, but it's important to know that it's his mother's car and not her car. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. 
So they go to the dance. They have a great time. You know, know what dances are like. And Rodney said that even though there were chaperones around and the chaperones were like, no drinking for you. Um, they did. And it was said that they drank alcohol and smoked some weed while at the Valentine's Day dance. Because what doesn't say love but weed? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Also to note, this night, Carla said she didn't have a curfew. I never heard the contrary, whether her parents were like she did and just said she didn't, but she had made it known to a lot of people she didn't have a curfew that night. So after the dance ended, her and Rodney left the dance, drove over to Wrigley's Bowling Alley, where they hung out. And it said that they got out of the car, went inside, went to the bathroom, and then came back out and did what teenagers do in cars. They started making out. Now, normally they go out in Carla's car. And when they go out in Carla's car, she makes sure that all the doors are locked when they're sitting in there because she leans up against the door when they're making out. But because they were in his mother's car, the latch that like locked it, because it's an older, it's a 70s car, you would think it was locked and it wouldn't be. Like you had to really push it down to lock it. And it wasn't. So Carla's leaned up against the door and someone comes from outside the car, walks up and then opens the door. Carla goes to fly backwards, like to fall out because she was leaned up against it. And Rodney goes to grab her. And as he's doing that, an unknown attacker starts to hit him. Carla's screaming, quit hitting him. Stop that. Stop that. And then the unknown attacker pistol whips Rodney. So now Rodney is bleeding and all of this stuff is happening and he doesn't know what's going on. And then he says he remembers the gun being pointed at his face and then the guy pulling the trigger. And he said that when he pulled the trigger, he thought to himself, I've been shot. I'm going to die. And then the trigger pulled a couple more times, but there was no bullet in it. Oh. So there were no bullets in the gun. At this point in time, the unknown attacker pulls Carla out of the car entirely. And Carla is screaming for Rodney to get help and screams out to Rodney to go get her dad. But Rodney is stunned. Like he's been beat on the face And he's been pistol whipped. So he's just like, he's not really doing anything. And right before they like walk off, the guy hits Rodney again and knocks him out. And when Rodney wakes up, they're all gone. And because he got hit and it wasn't like the guy bent down and looked at there in the face before he did all of this, Rodney couldn't really give a detailed description. He had a basic outline of the guy, which was he was a white male, not too tall. He was about 5'10-ish and stocky built. When Rodney came to and everyone was gone, the first thing he did was drive to Carla's house because he heard the dad thing, but also because this is 1974, it's not like he has a cell phone. He runs up to the door. It's late at night. He's like banging on it. Her parents finally open the door to find Rodney covered in blood because he's been pistol whipped. His head is bleeding and Rodney is just like, he really needs attention too. Like he needs medical attention. So her family calls 911. They get an ambulance for Rodney and the police go straight to the bowling alley to look at the scene. And they do that and they look around and they find some evidence like they find a magazine clip on the ground. They find some other evidence that they don't really release and share. Rodney gets out of the hospital after being stitched up. Now, Rodney is also very scared at this point because he's unsure of whether the person who did this or people who did this are going to come for him. Like, they might hear that Rodney lived and want revenge. 
So he's actually pretty freaked out about all of this. The Fort Worth Police Department calls in the FBI on this case because it's a big, like a girl's gone missing. They put together the largest search party in Fort Worth history up to this point. And no one knows who did this. No one can, they like interviewed all the people at the bowling alley, all the teens, all the people at the bar that were there. And no one saw anything. So for three days, they have zero answers. And on February 20th, 1974, they find Carla's body. Her body was found in this, like, it's off this rural road in this, like, big hollow tunnel south of Fort Worth, not far from Benbrook Lake. Her clothes were torn and kind of, like, ripped apart. Her underwear was not on her body. And the promise ring that Rodney had given her had been taken off and thrown about 12 feet. Her body was beaten and covered with bruises and abrasions, and she had been sexually violated. The police found, while they did their exam, they found three pubic hairs, recovered a semen sample, and they determined that the cause of death was strangulation. So this is what the autopsy revealed. And they also revealed that she'd been killed shortly after she was taken because earlier in the night before they went to the dance, they had gone to Taco Bell and she still had undigested parts of it in her digestive tract. Also, when they ran a tox screen, they found morphine in her system. So they realized that she had been drugged, probably for compliance to get her like away which would make sense if he drugged her quickly in the parking lot because then she's probably not shouting and stuff. And the community just started grieving. And the family was like, somebody knows who did this. And it's probably somebody we know because who else would go after a 17-year-old girl? So because of that thought, the police actually went to her funeral looking for people acting weird. I know that In looking at other cases, it's people paying way too much attention to the body, people who are asking really inappropriate questions about her death, people focusing on the whodunit aspect, not really grieving. So the investigation begins. And of course, they always start at the last person to see her alive, which happens to be Rodney. And they bring Rodney in. Mind you, he has been beaten and stitched up and has gone through a traumatic event. But they bring him in, this 18-year-old boy, and investigate him very aggressively, like hours of questioning. And he was their first suspect. Well, they end up letting him go, but they end up also following him. They put a tail on him and it was like he would go to school. They would follow him everywhere. They knew what Rodney was doing at all times. And obviously, like, this is a small area. Rodney knew he was being watched. There's no way he didn't. Well, they quickly determined that it was not Rodney. I think it probably had to do with, like, time of death. They realized that she had died after Rodney had, like, alerted her parents. So it would have been hard for him to have, like, committed the murder and other things like that. So they get their first actual suspect, which is Tommy Ray Neeland. And two months after, tried to abduct and assault another girl in a neighboring area. And then when they arrested him or came to talk to him about it, he confessed to three other murders in the Fort Worth area, just like blah, 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 blah. And during that time, they interview him and they interview him. And one of the things he says, because this is, you know, two months after the event, he says... Are you here to finally talk about Carla Walker when they come to get him? So they think, oh, God, he's the dude who's done this. And they start questioning him and they basically bring him to the point of like confession. Like 
He's crying. It's really intense. He looks like he's about to give it up. And some asshole of a detective opens the door because the reason they actually went to see him also is because he had tried to cash two checks that he had stolen. Two bond checks. So they were like, okay. And the the guy who's going to interrogate him about that opened the door. And then Tommy just shut down. And they never got him to talk about it again. He was tried and convicted for the three murders that he confessed to, and he was given life, but he was paroled in 1987. Fucking how? What? He didn't have life without parole. (laughs) So. Oh, my God. I just, I'm like, what is wrong with that parole board? Why? Why? Why would you let him out? Right. Like, why they let him out? I was just like, wait a minute. That's not that long. No. I mean, Kemper had a shorter turnaround for his parole dates. True, true. But just so that you know, this guy actually ended up getting out and then breaking his violation because he like sexually started another person. And then it was like this whole thing. Now, the problem with this is is they always thought he was good for it, but they couldn't connect him to Carla other than what he said. And let's be honest, he was probably just being a distraction because he did. He confessed to the other three. Why wouldn't he just confess to Carla's? So around the same time, actually on February 7th of 1973, a woman by the name of Becky Martin, who was a single mom, was abducted while she was going to attend a college class. And she was found in a culvert. That's the word. It's a culvert. She was found in a culvert very close to where Carla's body was. And she had been beaten, strangled, and sexually assaulted. And they were like, okay, these two seem to be the most connected of all of these cases that's happening in Fort Worth because she was found near Benbrook Lake. Same situation. Then the police in the late 1970s think they have this big ass break because this guy by the name of Jimmy Dean Sasser confesses that he has killed Carla. They take him in and he confesses all that, goes to sentencing. He's indicted and then he recants. And basically, they have to drop his case because the only evidence that they had to link him was, in fact, his confession, nothing else. No physical evidence. So for the next 45 years after 1974, so 45 years, we're now in 2019. There has been no public evidence that's come forth to change anything. And what ends up happening is that a new detective by the name of Jay Bennett takes over and looks through the case and finds this letter that was written to Detective Lieutenant Oliver Ball, who passed away shortly after receiving this letter. So it literally just got like shuffled in some papers and put into a file and was done with nothing for 45 years. What the police released to the public, they redacted the name that was there on the letter. So there's just like a big black bar where it was. But what the letter says is name not shown, which is the black bar, killed Carla Walker in Benbrook. Sign 10100, which I found out is the police code for a dead body. Oh, shit. And then it says, P.S. It is hard to say, but it is true. Sign 10100. So they have this letter and they publish it out because they're hoping that someone will see this. Now, here's the problem with this. It's been 45 fucking years. I'm not even 35 yet, so I can't even imagine asking someone to remember something in detail about somebody else 45 years later. 
Like, unless it was your spouse or it was someone that you've seen right day in and day out for 45 years, you're probably not going to remember it. But Carla has siblings. Jim, her younger brother, who was 12 when it happened, and her older sister, Cindy, and I don't know how old she was when this happened. And they just never gave up. And neither did Rodney. Rodney, he went on Paul Hole's show. I can't remember the name of it now. But yeah, he went on the show and gave like, he basically told about it. He has gone or underwent hypnosis to try to remember details from the night, but all he can reproduce is what he's actually given. I think Rodney has done a fantastic job of giving the police everything that he possibly can. I mean, he was young. He was 17, 18 years old when this happened to him. And I can't imagine what it would look like to have your girlfriend ripped out of a car in front of you. And then you be the suspect at first and have to deal with that. Most 17, 18 year olds barely have, and no offense, barely have the emotional maturity of putting pants on in the morning. Because there, there's so many decisions like college and all these things that are happening around you. So you're like, ah, panic. And then to add this big thing, because it was the last part of his senior year of high school. Pretty crazy. And then during his interview with Paul Holes, he's he actually talks about the whole lock thing, how he that's one of his biggest regrets of that night is that when they were sitting there, he didn't check to see if it was locked or that they hadn't taken Carla's car to make sure it locked all the way. But who would know that this crazed person would abduct your girlfriend out of a car? Like Rodney should not feel guilty about that at all. So this has tormented him for a while. Now flash forward to 46 years, seven months, and five days. And there's an answer for everyone's question of who done it. Basically what happened is shortly after they did the letter, they decided to retest the DNA that they had on file. So they send their DNA to a private DNA lab named Orthram. And at this point in time, they had done it before. They had run it in like 2003, but they only ran it against who was in prison, basically through CODIS. And even in 2003, we know that DNA wasn't as advanced as it is today. And I really think that right now we're living in a time where we're going to see a lot of these fucking cases solved. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, the Golden State Killer, totally DNA. This guy taken down totally through DNA. Very similar circumstances. So I do think that we're living in a time where a lot of these like unanswered questions about who done it is going to really start piling up. Oh, yeah. So they get a name and his name is Glenn Samuel McCurley. He was actually originally a person of interest in 1974 because the magazine that was found on the ground at the bowling alley matched a gun registered to him. But that was it. That was the link. The only other thing that they kind of thought was weird is that he would drive by her parents' house. That's it. But, you know, you're like, I don't know. So in today's time, he's 77. So he was 31 years old. So he was a lot older than her. He was almost double her age. Yeah. Oh, my God. Right. So there was no actual connection. And they were thinking it was someone younger, like in their 20s, someone who probably came encounter with him. But like I said earlier, there were older people at that bonfire or that beer bust, as they called it. So he was probably there that night. He was probably the guy who was hitting on her that made her feel uncomfortable and annoyed Rodney. And then he probably, my. this is my theory, it hasn't been proven yet, but I'm going on record with my official theory here, and it is that he was there the night before, and then he was at the bowling alley the next night, because I do think this guy was probably a little bit of a pedo, and he probably saw her, because they walked in and went to the bathroom and went off to the car, and then he probably went out and attacked her. 
So they have his name, his DNA shows up, and they did exactly what they did with the Golden State Killer. They stalked him and they found his trash. They pulled a DNA sample out of the trash and it matched DNA from the crime scene. Then in July of 2020, they go out and they question McCurley about it. And they ask him, do you know anything about this? And he's like, no, blah, blah, blah. Can we get a DNA sample from you? You know, just to make sure it's him and not maybe someone living in his house or someone who'd been over at his house. And he was like, sure, here's my DNA. Dumbass. Like, did he not watch the news from California? (laughs) So he volunteers his DNA and who fucking bows why. So they take his DNA and of course, boom, it matches the crime scene. And I'm assuming it just took a little bit. So then they get their warrant to go arrest him. So on, and this just happened because today is the 28th. This happened on September 21st of 2020. He was arrested and charged with Carla's murder. Now, I watched this news clip because we're dealing with Texas here. The family, Jim Walker was speaking for the family, and they credit this with happening through prayer. And I'm not dissenting on this because I feel like what a great belief system that you put your belief in the hand of a deity and things lined up because they firmly believe that as soon as they started praying, things started to happen. Like power to you. Like even if you don't believe in God, like that's like the ultimate positive vibes. So I just thought that was a really interesting. The other thing I thought was really interesting is when they asked him how he felt about it, he said that he doesn't hate him, that he forgives him, that he's praying for him. And that, in my opinion, That takes like a big ass man to like stand up and be like, this is, he was 12 when he last saw his little or his older sister. That is a a crazy time for a child. And I mean, I know that he's had 46 years, but we've seen in other cases where people have had 46 years and have become hardened and bitter and they're just, they hate the world. But now it's like, he's going to get answers and... I don't know. It's just like he had this peace about him when he was talking. So I was like, I really hope that when other cold cases like this happen, that they can have the same peace that Jim Walker has. And I hope Rodney has now because, I mean, this guy was 31 years old. I don't know many. I mean, I'm going to say this and someone's going to be like, I know tons of 18 year olds who can take out 31 year olds. But think about the life that's happened between the time that you're 18 and 31. And this man knew exactly what he was doing. So this case will definitely go to court. It's going to trial. So we will have an update when that rolls around. But I am super I'm super happy this has a good answer because this is such a like a sad story. And like I said earlier, I'm excited that we live in a time where I believe a lot of these cold cases are going to start getting solved through DNA because it's every year it's getting better and better and better. Yeah, for sure. Well, that is all I have for today. And we will see you back here on Monday on our main feed for another episode of Three Speech Girls. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.